You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. All right, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 6 through 10 uh, today. Uh, This letter, if you have read it, if you've been following along, you would notice that this letter is filled with instructions for the church. Do this. This is how this person should conduct themselves. In fact, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, a verse that, verses that we've quoted many times as we started this study, Paul says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that, that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So there are a lot of instructions that are given in this book. And if you are not careful, you would get bogged down with the instructions and miss the gospel, which is clearly presented in this book. And we are going to talk about that uh, today uh, because that is the most important thing that we could possibly talk about. We're going to be concentrating in on verses 6 through 10 today, but I want to read the whole chapter uh, starting, well, the first 10 verses starting with verse 1. So this is the very word of God, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verses 1 through 10. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's look to him for guidance today. Father, we come into your presence, Lord, and this is your holy word. I pray that we would tremble at it today. I pray, God, that we would not take it for granted. I pray that we would not take this as suggestions, Lord, but that we would take this as the very word of the God of this universe who is instructing us, who is calling us to a lifestyle of godliness. And so, Lord, I just pray, God, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. I pray, God, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word, putting this into practice for your glory and the good of your people in this island. And we just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Last summer, uh, on Saturdays, a group of us would get together and we would play soccer in the morning. 
Uh, if you have ever played soccer, you know that there is a whole lot of running that is involved in soccer. Uh, the first time that I got out there, the first Saturday, I barely made it halfway down the field before I was doubled over sucking wind and wondering if I was going to die. Um, I was that out of shape. I realized that I was out of shape, and I said, I, I cannot do this every Saturday. I have to get into shape. So what I did is I started to run for two miles on the seawall three times a week, uh, and I was diligent in doing that. By the third Saturday that I went out and played, I noticed at the end of the game, I'm like, I didn't get winded at all. I did not get tired at all. I, have a, I was running as hard as I ever was, and I was not winded. My discipline, my training, had actually paid off. If you read Paul's letters, what you will see is that from time to time, Paul uses sports illustrations in his letters. He talks about runners. He talks about boxers. In our passage today, Paul wants to ensure that his dear friend Timothy is getting the proper nutrition and the proper training in spiritual matters. He begins our passage by saying this, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is this, You will prove yourself to be a good servant of Jesus Christ if you are constantly putting before the people in your church the things that I am teaching you. Well, what are these things that Paul was teaching them. Well, it's the things that we've been talking about all along. Adherence to sound biblical doctrine and teaching. So much so that error or false teaching is quickly recognized and refuted so that the truth is not maligned in any way, so that the truth is not watered down in any way, because the truth of the Word of God is the only thing that has the power to save. And so adherence to sound biblical teaching is absolutely essential. If these things are not constantly set before the people, then they will sink into error and they will be more likely to depart from the faith. Well, what is the faith? Well, this is what I love to talk about. This is what you should love to talk about as well. We must always come back to the basics. It's fun to study the deeper doctrines of the Bible. It's important to study the deeper doctrines of the Bible, but we always come back to the fundamentals, the basics of the faith. And the faith is basically this. It is what you do with Jesus. It's what you do with Jesus. It is believing in Jesus. And what I want to do is I want to take a journey back through this letter of 1 Timothy um, and talk about what this faith is. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, just a, a, a page or two back. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. And here's what Paul says there. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, i.e. I was a sinner. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So what we see from that passage is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that Paul, the Apostle Paul, even though he was a vile sinner, received mercy because of the faith that he put in Jesus Christ. But this passage does not tell us how Jesus saves sinners. It just tells us that Jesus does save sinners. For how he saves sinners, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. So one chapter over, 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Here's what he says. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then skipping down to verse 3, he says this, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So how did Jesus save us? The answer that comes to us is that Jesus saved us by becoming a ransom, by giving his life as a ransom for us. The word ransom is a rich theological term describing the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. The word that Paul uses here for ransom does not simply mean to pay a price. I don't know if you've seen movies or heard about a ransom. It's just like we're demanding a million dollars. Just like I, I pay the million dollars, therefore I get um, this person back or whatever it is. That's not what it's talking about here. Christ did not merely pay the ransom to free us. Christ became the ransom to free us. He died our death. He bore our sins. He gave himself for us. This is the amazing truth of the Bible. I don't know if you've ever read um, uh, the C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or seen the movie. There is a favorite part in that movie that I have. It, it, it's a, around this guy, this character by the name of Edmund. Edmund is one of a, a couple children that have found themselves in this mystical land of Narnia. And he hooks up with this evil woman, the White Witch. And he basically pledges allegiance to her. Somewhere during the course of the, the story, he realizes the error of his ways and kind of has this repentance where he comes into the camp of Aslan, the lion. The great lion who represents Jesus. And he confesses that he was wrong. And he is welcomed in. And all seems to be well until the white witch comes calling for him one day. And the white witch comes into the camp of Aslan. And everyone notices that she's there because they all hate her. They all know what she stands for. And she walks into the camp of Aslan. And she says this. There is a traitor among you. And Aslan, knowing exactly what she's talking about and who she's talking about, steps forward and says, his offense was not against you. Implying that his offense was against Aslan, 
who represents Jesus once again. And the white witch says to Aslan, have you forgotten the laws upon which Narnia was written? That every traitor belongs to me and his blood is my property. His blood is my property. I own him. He is a traitor. And then the white witch turning to everyone says this, that Aslan knows, Aslan knows that unless I have blood as the law prescribes, that all of Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. And then pointing to Edmund, she says, this boy will die on the stone table as is tradition. And then looking at Aslan, she says, you cannot, you dare not refuse me. And Aslan, knowing that she is right, calls her into a private meeting, into a tent. And they're in there for what seems like hours. And then finally they emerge. And Aslan announces, he says, the, the witch has renounced her claim on the blood of Edmund. And there is just a cheer from the crowd. Yay! But is that it? That's the end of the story. No, there's more to it. How can they just ignore that law about the blood? How can it just be okay? It can't be. Well, what happened in that tent is that Aslan the lion and the white witch struck a deal. Blood was required. And so blood would be offered, but it wouldn't be the blood of Edmund. It wouldn't be the blood of any of his siblings or anyone else that was in Narnia. It would be the blood of Aslan himself. Aslan would lay down his life so that Edmund would not have to. Aslan would die so that Edmund could be set free. Aslan would lay down his life as a ransom for Edmund. And this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Our offense was not against Satan. The ransom, therefore, is not paid to Satan. Our offense was against God, and so the ransom is paid to God. And the law of the universe is this. The law that God set into motion was this, that the wages of sin is death. The payment for sin is death. That is a universal law. That is a law that not even God himself can set aside and still be considered just. Man rebelled, therefore man has to pay the price for that. Blood is required from all those who rebel against a holy God. And who is it that has rebelled against God? All of us. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then earlier in the chapter, it says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who is righteous. So how is this remedied since none of us wants to die, especially none of us want to die eternally? Well, the remedy is found when you combine 1 Timothy chapter 2, which we just read, with 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. In 1 Timothy 3.16, speaking of Jesus, Paul says this, He, Jesus, was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. 
Jesus, who was and is God, took on a human nature and a human body. He became a man. Why? Why did he do that? He did it so that he could live the perfect life that you and I were required to live but could not live. Whereas we lie, Jesus never did. Whereas we are selfish, Jesus never was. Whereas we have a tendency to hold grudges, Jesus never did. Whereas we lust, Jesus never did. Jesus did everything that you and I were supposed to do and nothing that we were forbidden to do. Therefore, Jesus, as a man, as the God-man, became the perfect go-between, the perfect mediator between us and God, between holy God and sinful humanity. Jesus gave his perfect life as a ransom for us, his life in place of our life. He paid the demands for blood in the law by offering his own blood. And now he has granted us access to God as a result of that. People, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. There is no more important message that I can preach. There is no more important message than you can hear. There is no more important message that you can proclaim to your friends and your family members and your co-workers and your fellow students. There's no greater message than this. In fact, in, in our last verse in our passage, Paul says this, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, I don't want to get hung up on that last phrase, especially those who believe, but I do want to address it just for a minute here um, because there's some confusion here. What I think he's saying is, is, is this, that this is talking about the goodness of God, which really does extend to all of humanity, regard, irregardless of your relationship with God. Um, the, the word savior that's used, yes, it means to save sin, but it can also mean preserver as well. And in a sense, there's a sense in which all of the people who are living today are being preserved currently from the wrath of God. But ultimately, only the people of God will be ultimately preserved from God's wrath. Remember also that the Bible says that he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That means the rain that brings forth the, the, the fruit of the ground falls on those who love God, it falls on their fields, and it also falls on the fields of those who hate God or don't even acknowledge God. And the truth of the matter is, is that even the most unholy of people in this life are able to enjoy the good gifts of God, the beauty of creation, the beauty of relationships, the beauty of possessions, the beauty of health. Everyone is able to enjoy those things, those good gifts from God. So in a sense, he's preserving us all in that sense, since none of us deserve any of these things. The Bible, in fact, says it's the kindness and the patience of God that leads us to repentance, right? The fact that he is long-suffering to us. We deserve to be wiped out immediately, but we're not. And that's what I think Paul is talking about here. 
This verse certainly cannot be implying that, that God saves everyone. God saves everyone from his wrath because that would go against the clear teaching of the rest of the Bible, which doesn't point to that. It talks about judgment. It talks about people hearing those horrible words, depart from me for I never knew you. So it can't be talking about that. And also, as, as I thought about this, this, is, this I, I see as a good witnessing tool to demonstrate the love and the patience of God. If your unbelieving friends truly understood how severe their sin was, they would absolutely stand in amazement at how gracious and how patient God was with them because they would realize that they should have been wiped out long ago. But God was giving them opportunity after opportunity to come to him because he did not want to pour out his wrath on them. Well, that's all I want to say about that right now. Paul's toil and striving is for the purpose of understanding, preserving, and proclaiming the truth of God, which alone has the power to save. That is why he is toiling. That is why he is striving, because the truth brings salvation to people. And here's what I want to ask. Do you believe that the word of God, the truth of God, actually has the power to save? Do you believe that it has the power to save? And if you say that you do, does it show in the way that you think, the way that you speak, and the way that you conduct yourself? Does it demonstrate that? The way that the, the things that you think about and how you think about the world, the things that you say, the, the words that come out of your mouth, the things that you do in this world, do they demonstrate that the gospel of God, the word of God has the power to save? I prove myself to be a good servant of Jesus Christ if I constantly lay these things before you, calling you to actually put them into practice. As we recall the truths of Scripture as individuals and as a body, as the church, then according to verse 6, we are being nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. Nourished is the best translation for the word that's used here rather than trained. Um, our diet is important. Our diet is important. And so I want to ask you is this. What are you feeding on today? What are you eating today? The world offers us a bunch of junk food, spiritually speaking. The world is filled with books and videos and conferences and, and teachings and schools and all sorts of stuff that will tell us uh, about marriage and about uh, child rearing and, and about mental health and about everything else that you can think of. But if it's not founded on the word of God, in the end, it is just junk food. It is junk food. Where do we get our nourishment as we're trying to be the best husband that God has called us to be? Or the best wife that God has called us to be? Where do we get our nourishment as we're, as, as we're trying to figure out how to raise our children? How do we get our nourishment? Where do we get our nourishment when, when the, the anxieties of this world are, are beating in, are, are pressing in around us? And, and we're starting to become depressed and starting to lose hope. Where do we find our nourishment when we're dealing with those unreasonable people, even those hostile people? Where do we get our nourishment? We get it from the word of God. It's no accident that our learning and applying the Word of God is often spoke of in the Word of God as eating, right? It's often spoke of as, as in, in terms of eating. According to Psalm 19, the Word of God is sweeter than honey, right? It, it's sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. In Jeremiah 
chapter 15, verse 16, the prophet said this, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me the joy and delight of my heart. Peter refers to the word of God as the milk, the basic milk. And the writer of Hebrews refers to it as the meat, the meat. And Jesus quoting Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 8 said this, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. This is your daily food. And here's what I want you to, you may not realize this, but every waking moment of the day, you are feeding on something. You are eating something. Every waking moment of the day, and if it's not the truth of the word of God, then it's the junk food of the world. If you're not feeding on the word of God, if you're not taking every thought captive to obey Christ, then you are feeding on the junk food of the world. And this junk food comes in many, many different forms. First of all, it comes in the form of entertainment. As the world tells us, as the world defines what is truly entertaining or funny. It comes in the form of advice as the world claims to know what is the truth? It comes in the form of morality as the world claims to know what is right and what is wrong. We will define what is right and what is wrong for you. It comes even in the, in the form of beauty as the world claims to define what beauty is, what inner beauty is, and what outer beauty is through the TV and the internet and social media and the people that you hang around with, we are feeding all day long. When you sit in front of the TV, what you are basically saying is teach me, teach me, teach me about relationships, teach me how to interact with people, tell me what's right, tell me what's wrong, tell me how sh I should conduct myself uh, around my girlfriend or my boyfriend. Tell me how I should treat someone if they wrong me. Teach me. That's what we are doing. And so I ask you again, what are you feeding on throughout the morning and the evening? Well, Paul in Philippians 4, 8 urges us with these words. He says this, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Feed on these things. Have a steady diet of truth and noble, and noble things and just things and pure things. Well, going along with the athletic theme here, Paul begins to talk about training. He just talked about nourishment in verse 6, and now in verses 7 and 8, he talks about spiritual training. And he says this, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The Greek word that is used for training here is gymnazo, and it's the word from which we get our English word, gymnasium. Okay, what do you do in a gymnasium? You train. And the idea is that of the Greek athletes who would train for the Olympic Games or would train for the, the sporting events. 
And what they would do is they would be careful in what they ate. They would discipline themselves to make sure that they ate the right things so that their bodies were not worn down. And then they would be careful to discipline themselves for the purpose of training, making sure that they're working out the muscle groups that they need to work out in order to compete in whatever event that they would be competing in. Why? Because they wanted to excel. They wanted to win. They didn't want to take second place. They didn't want to just say, oh yeah, I competed. They wanted to say, I won. I excelled. I was better than everyone. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, or you can just listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul employs a similar athletic illustration as we have in our passage right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 24, he says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? <clears throat> so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Talking about going back to our passage in 1 Timothy, um, value in this life and in the life to come. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You get the point, right? The Christian life is hard. It is difficult. Sin is all around us, seeking to trip us up, seeking to disqualify us from the race that we are in. And so we must train ourselves for the purpose of godliness. In 1 Timothy 4, 10, in our passage, Paul says this, for to this end we toil and strive. These words convey the idea that this is hard, laborious work that at the end of the day, exhausts you. You're tired because you've been so involved in the work of God. But this labor is worth it in the end because it is kingdom work. And the reward for it will last not in this life only, but in the life to come as well. You will one day walk into the presence of God, bruised and bleeding, exhausted and tired, and you will hear those words from the God of this universe, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you. Great is your reward in heaven. That's what you will hear. And I'm going to tell you, there is nothing more important than ensuring that that message that we can be right with God is proclaimed throughout the whole world. There's nothing more important than proclaiming the message that Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. And we must get it out into the world. So we are to work hard. We are to train ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Well, what is godliness? Well, godliness defines a Christian existence as the interplay of the knowledge of God and of the truth and the observable outworking of that knowledge in appropriate ways. In other words, godliness is life actions that are informed 
by who God is and what God requires of us. Godliness comes out of someone saying, who are you, God? Who are you in truth? And then what do you require of me? How should my life look as a result of what I know about God and myself? That's what godliness is. Therefore, godliness says this. This is, the who, this is God. This is who God truly is. And therefore, this is how I should live. Godliness says this. I was a wretched sinner deserving God's wrath. And yet he showed me mercy. He forgave me for all my sins. And now I should reflect his character in the world by showing mercy to other people who have offended me, who have hurt me, who have made me look like a fool. I should extend that same mercy. That's what it means to be godly there. Godliness says, although Jesus was rich, he became poor so that we could become rich in him. God met my physical and my spiritual needs. Therefore, I should abandon my life to meet the physical and spiritual needs of those around me by giving of them my, my, my uh, material possessions and also giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Godliness says, Jesus was selfless in the salvation of people. Therefore, I should have that same attitude and I should serve selflessly so that other people can know, come to know Jesus. Godliness says this, there is no one greater than God in this world. Therefore, I will set my affections and my desires on things above, not on the passing things of this world. And I will live my life in constant worship of God and I will let everyone around me know that that's exactly how I'm living my life. Godliness not only says these things, godliness also puts these things into practice as well. Godliness, a godly person is someone who follows what James chapter 122 says is this, be ye doers of the word and not just hearers only who deceive themselves. Let's say that you go home uh, today and you look in the mirror and you conclude that you have really let yourself go physically, right? I mean, you see the pot belly, um, you're trying to get up the stairs and you can't even get up the stairs without getting winded. And you've just determined, I am out of shape. I am, I am lethargic and, and I need to get in shape and I will do whatever it takes to get into shape. And so you are so serious that you actually hire a trainer and you say, you need to whip me into shape. And the trainer will come in and what they will do is that they will start to give you instructions. They'll say, hey, this is what you should eat. This is what you should not eat. If you want to build up muscles in your arms, I recommend these five exercises. If you want to uh, flatten your stomach, I recommend that you do this. This is what you need to do. If you want to work on your chest or your legs, you need to do these exercises or these, this workout program. And so they will give you instructions over and over again. But here's what you know about this, that the mere fact of them giving you these instructions will do nothing for you in accomplishing your goal of getting in shape unless you actually heed those instructions, right? It will do nothing for you whatsoever. Hey, those are some good ideas. Those are some good exercises. Those sound like those will work. And then you just sit on your couch eating Doritos and do nothing, right? You will not accomplish those goals that you set. The same is true in the Christian life. Let's just call our trainer the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God. 
he comes to us and he says, you're out of shape, right? You're out of shape spiritually. Here's how you can get in shape. And he starts to give us instructions. Don't do this. Don't feed on this. Feed on this. Don't do that. Do this. If you do this, you will be exercising yourself for the purpose of godliness. And we, according to the Bible, have the ability to listen to him or ignore him. We have the ability to sadly quench the Holy Spirit, to grieve the Holy Spirit by ignoring him and saying, oh, I hear what you're saying, but no, nah, I'm not going to do it. But we do this to our own demise. If we do this, then we remain weak. We remain lethargic, spiritually speaking. We remain impotent in our power, in terms of our power in our, our kingdom work and our mission to this world. Therefore, we must listen to our trainer and we must follow what he says. Why? Why? Because he's the one who created us. And he's the one that knows what is best for us and that will bring us the most happiness, the maximum amount of happiness, not the temporary happiness that the world can offer, which leaves us empty in the end. But he knows exactly. If you do this, I know you'll experience happiness for a second, but then it will leave you empty. So don't do that. He knows what is best for us and he knows what glorifies God. And if you think about it, why should we do this? Because the God of this universe has given up everything for us and it's the least that we can do to say, thank you, thank you. How should I live? I'm, giving, I'm putting my life in your hands because you know what to do with it. I've screwed it up. I've messed it up. I have grieved you. My offense was against you. Show me how I can live a life that pleases you because you've done so much for me. And we do this because as Christians, if we are truly denying ourselves, if we are truly taking up our cross and following him, then what we have done is we have placed all of our hope on the living God and the promises that he offers us. We have placed all of our hope on that. We have said the world can't do it. I'm placing everything, all of my hope on God. We're placing all of our hope in the fact that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. We're placing all of our hope in the fact that if we lose everything in this world, if we give up everything in this world, that we have a home waiting for us and we'll get it all back and more. And that what we get in heaven will never perish, will never go away. We're placing all of our hope on the promises that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us in the end. We're placing all of our hope on the fact that though this outer man is decaying through disease, through, uh, through uh, old age or whatever it may be, that our inner man is being renewed day by day. And that even though we may die, we will live again. We will rise again. And that Jesus will one day take us to be where he is. And we will live with him forever and ever. That's what we're placing our hope in. Our hope is on the living God. And Paul and the countless missionaries that came after him up to our present day who gave up everything to follow Jesus were placing their hope on the living God who is the Savior of the world. So let me ask you this question as we close. And please don't ignore it and say, oh, that's what a pastor is supposed to ask. 
seriously ask yourself this question. Think about it today. Think about it this week. Where is your hope? Where is your hope? Is your hope in money or material possessions? Your job? Is your hope in your house or other material possessions? Is your hope in a relationship that you have? If your hope is in anything other than the living God, then you will be let down in a major way. Houses come and go. Money comes and goes. Relationships even come and go. They're either separated because of sin or separated because of death. Our hope must be on the living God. The psalmist said, hope in God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, now remains these three, faith, hope, and love. And then in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, here's what Paul said. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we're not enemies of God anymore. We're at peace with God. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's where our hope is. Our hope is in God. And so we train ourselves to live in a way that best represents the living God whose family you and I have been adopted into and whose mission we have been enlisted into. And it's the greatest mission and the most important mission in the world. And that's what we should be focusing in on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And once again, Lord, I pray that this would not just be a, another sermon that we listened to, a box that we checked. Yes, I did my religious duties this week or whatever. But I pray that I and everyone else in here would listen. Lord, someone came to me in the first service and said it was so convicting. And I just had to say, yes, I prepared it and I have to hear it. And it's convicting to me as well. And so I just pray, God, that you would change our hearts, our focus, that you would set our affections on things above, not on the things of this world. I pray that you would show us that there is a real heaven and a real hell. And that if people, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members don't know you, then they will spend an eternity away from you. And I just pray that our hearts would be stirred. I pray that our hearts would be stirred to reach out to them with the gospel message and that we would live in, in ways that please you, the God who has saved us. We thank you for your word, and it cuts like a knife. Um, I pray, God, that that cutting would bring healing and restoration and hope and obedience. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.